He said, we're all striving for the same place. You go your way and I go mine. The way we get there is not important just as long as we all get there. The uh, Buddhist priestess said the same thing. She said it a little bit more poetically. She said, there are many mountain roads that lead up the mountain to God. We believe that all who strive upward, sincerely strive upward, will one day come to the top of the mountain and we'll all enjoy the moonlight together. The question is tonight, is one religion as good as another if sincerely believed and followed? And the big question is, are all the paths that men follow, eventually will all the paths that men follow get to God? There are many religions and many ways that men have sought to get to God. 7,000 years, 7, years ago in the city of Byblos, right off the coast, the Mediterranean coast, a very religious man was, was buried. He was placed in an earthen jar or urn. His legs were drawn up under his chin and his head was turned to the side in the exact prenatal position of an un, unborn babe because his religion taught that out of this earthly womb he would one day be born into a new world. He believed that religion sincerely, that belief. He lived by it and he died by it. 2,000 years ago, pilgrims of the Jewish faith made their way to the temple at Mount Moriah and in that temple was this gigantic stone believed to be the place where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And that stone was stained by millions of gallons of blood drawn from the veins of goats and bullocks. And people came there because their religion drew them there. And they were sincere. It was a religious belief that they lived and died by. Imagine yourself tonight in a, in a hotel room in Cairo. It's beginning to dawn in early morning on a hot and sultry day. And outside your window, you're awakened by a mournful cry. And as you look out the window, you see a man bending over, kneeling in the street. He's an Arab, and he has a battered tea kettle in his hand, and he pours water out of it to wash his hands and face into ceremonial purification. Then he bows toward the holy city of Mecca, and he begins to pray one of five prayers that devout Muslim will pray today. He is devoutly religious, a religion that he will live by and die by. Or imagine yourself in Jerusalem in the church of the Holy Sepulcher. And in that church is a gigantic marble slab believed by the Catholic world to be the place where the body of Jesus was laid for preparation and anointment. And watch as a little woman kneels by the slab and does the sign of the cross. And she bends over and she kisses the marble slab again and again. And she takes the rosary from around her neck and rubs the slab with every bead of that rosary. And she scoops up some unseen substance from off the slab and rubs them all over her body. And when she turns to leave, you look in her face and there's a look of pious ecstasy. For she's made the pilgrimage to the most sacred place in all the earth. She's sincere, deeply religious, 
It's a belief she'll live and die by. Or go into the bush country of Africa and watch as a half-naked ebony woman wrings the neck of a scrawny chicken and allows the blood to squirt on a grotesque idol and listen to the Baptist missionary standing beside you say, she's giving thanks to her God for the birth of her child. It's a religion she believes in deeply, a religious faith by which she shall live and die. For there are many roads that lead up the mountain as men have sought to find God. And someday all of us will stand at the top of the mountain and enjoy the same moonlight. If you believe that Christianity and religion are the same. But Christianity and religion are not the same. Religion is man's reaching up for God. It's the belief that man will find God by striving for Him. That, that, that God can be placated and satisfied and pleased by human effort. It's a belief that the system is more important than the Savior. It's the emphasis that man should more, more fit into the structure than to commit his life to the person of Jesus. But Christianity, on the other hand, is God's downreach for man and the belief that man cannot meet his own needs, and so God in love moves to meet ours. Christianity and religion are not the same, and sooner or later, Christianity and religion will come head on in an encounter and a clash. It did so in the text. Let me preface what I want to say tonight by three truths. You might want to jot these down. It don't fit the outline. First, man is instinctly religious. You don't have to teach a man to be religious. He is instinctly religious. It is inherent in man to seek after God. Man is instinctly religious. Secondly, religion is man's upreach toward God because he is instinctly religious. It is man's upreach toward God. And the third truth is this. One religion is as good as the next. Sooner or later, later Christianity and religion will clash. That's true in your own life. Every religious person alive on earth, a person who has an instinctive desire to find God, sooner or later, every religious person in life comes to the place in his life where he confronts the fact that he has not had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion and Christianity will one day clash because they are opposites. Would you jot this down on the back? They're opposites in direction. Religion is man's upreach for God. Christianity is God's downreach for man. They're opposites in motivation. Religion is, is the result of man's effort and man's need for God. Christianity is, stems from God's compassionate love for man. They're opposites in initiation. Religion is a frustrated man searching for God. Christianity is a compassionate God searching for man. They're opposites in salvation. Religion is the belief that man 
by worldly ritual can please God. Christianity says that man is saved because of what God has done in the sacrifice of Jesus. Our text is a clash between Christianity and religion. This is the setting, the main event, and the, main, and the major characters. There has been the healing of, a, of, an, of an impotent man, a lame man, a man who has been lame for 40 years. A miracle has been performed and a crowd gathers. The main characters in this drama are the priest of the temple and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees. Now the first two we can understand, the second we don't really know that much about, the Sadducees. They're the wealthy aristocrats of the Jewish community. They hold the purse strings of the Jewish community and they have a tremendous influence in the Jewish life. They have developed a, day, a detente with the Roman Empire so that they coexist with the Roman Empire and they, are the, they exploit the poor, the religious professionals, and they very much want to maintain the status quo. They don't want anything to happen to disturb the balance of power. But the most impressive thing about the Sadducees is their theology. They deny, they do not believe in angels or demons or Satan or the Holy Spirit. They do not believe in miracles, the miraculous. They reject the idea of the resurrection and life after death. That's why they're sad, you see. Now these are the main characters in this event. And the complaint that they bring is found in verse 2. Their complaint is that these people are preaching the resurrection from the dead through Jesus Christ. That in Jesus Christ there is resurrection from the dead. That's their complaint. And the consequences of that and their complaint is this. They took these men and they threw them in jail. Now, now, folks, you can put the messenger in jail, but you can't jail the message. You can bind up in chains the messenger, but you can't bind the word he preaches. Paul said that from a Roman cell when he wrote to Timothy. He said the word of God will not be bound. You cannot stop truth by stopping the men who hold it. You cannot defeat the Word of God. It will not return void. One of the most powerful impacts you can make on this world is to know this Word and proclaim it. For whatever happens, it will not be defeated. As a matter of fact, when they put these men in jail, they just accentuated the message they preached. That's always been true. And so they put John Knox in prison and the people came by the thousands and listened to him preach three times a day through the prison windows. And more people were impressed and moved by the sermons he preached inside the jail than when he was outside. And John Bunyan in his third imprisonment wrote Pilgrim's Progress and out of that imprisonment came a message that would never be silenced. And so when they put, him in, put them in jail, they put the messengers in jail, 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, believed in Christ. Just, they just accentuated the message. Now with these men in prison, the next day they brought them out and the inquisition began, beginning at verse 5. Follow me closely. 
the inquisition, the inquiring concerning religion and Christianity began. The clash now takes place. And I've noted from this text of Scripture that there are three characteristics of religion and there are three limitations of religion. I want to point those out. Number one, characteristic of religion number one is that religion exercises intimidation when it's threatened, verse 5. Religion always exercises intimidation when it's threatened. Now let me give you an example of intimidation. Intimidation is what you feel when you're brought into court and you sit down there under oath and all eyes are on you. I was asked to be a to be a character witness in a divorce settlement one time and I, they flew me down from West Texas down to Wichita Falls and brought me in this courtroom. I was scared to death. They were, I was intimidated. And they set me down and they, uh, uh, they swore me in and the guy said, would you state your name? And I said, Gerald, uh, Gerald Tidwell. You know, I, I was just uh, terrified. I was intimidated. Whenever religion is threatened, its process is intimidation. I've noticed that a hundred times. I've seen it with young people. Let a young person really give his life and make a vital commitment to Jesus Christ and the next day at school there are these little groups, you know, and they kind of whisper and they look at you. All eyes are on you. I've seen it happen with adults. Let a person have a vital experience with Jesus Christ and the next day at the coffee shop there's that kind of little subtle grin when he comes in. There's that intimidation. That's the form religion takes when threatened. The second thing I notice about religion and its characteristic is that it emphasizes tradition when it's uncertain. Verses 5 through 7. And so they brought in the Sanhedrin, 70 of these men, white-haired men, dignified, self-confident men, 70 of them. The high priest Annas and Caiaphas were there and Alexander. I mean the, the powers that be, the big time. You talk about your big names, they were all there. And there they were sitting in this semicircle with their legs crossed. The supreme court of the Jewish economy, the Jewish community. And they were all sitting there and they brought these men in, Peter and John, these ignorant men. And set them down before them. You know who the Sanhedrin, what, you know about the Sanhedrin, don't you? These were the same 70 men who just a few days before had brought Jesus to trial. And all six, um, it kind of takes place like this. Well, uh, you say you want to do what? Well, uh, let me check that out. Uh, you know, I don't think we've ever done that before. Uh, you say... Uh, you say you believe what? <laughs> well, well, uh, Deacon Smothers says he didn't think Baptists ever believed like that before. Uh, when, when religion is uncertain, what we do is we check the oracles to see if it fits tradition. And if we've never done that way before, if that's never been done here like that before, then we must never try that, you know, we must never try that tradition. I notice the third thing about religion is that it employs interrogation when it's suspicious. And so they said, by what power have you done this? 
Are you sure you've had that kind of an experience? Um, can you prove that walk with the Lord, that experience you've had? Uh, can, can you explain that so that I can understand it? By what power and in what name? And then I notice that religion has some limitations. Number one, it lacks the filling of the Spirit. And the Scripture says that Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit stood. You know what's wrong with religion? It lacks the Spirit's fullness. And, and there's a dullness and there's a deadness that comes with it. It's like, it's like fire without heat. It's like a bird without a song. It's like, it's like lungs without breath to have religion without the Holy Spirit. Samuel Stevenson has written this little poem. Listen to this. A city full of churches, great preachers, lettered men, grand music, choirs, and organ. But if these all fail, what then? Good workmen, eager, earnest, who labor hour by hour. But where, oh where, my brother, is God's almighty power? Refinement, education, they want the very best. Their plans and schemes are perfect. They give themselves no rest. They get the best of talent. They try their uttermost. But what they need, my brother, is God, the Holy Ghost. It is the Holy Spirit that quickeneth the soul. God will not take man's worship, man worship, or bow to man's control. No human innovation, no skill or worldly art can give true repentance or break a sinner's heart. We may have human wisdom, grand singing, great success, may have the best equipment, but these things do not bless. God wants a clean vessel, anointed lips and true, a man filled with the Spirit to speak His message through. For when you boil religion down to its naked truth, it does not meet man's need. The only thing that meets man's need is the life the Holy Spirit gives. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The second limitation, they were blinded to Christ working. Uh, they, they were the builders that rejected the stone that became the head's the head of the corner. You know, the hardest people in the world to preach to are to witness to religious folk. And the third limitation is that religion is silenced by a transformed life. Ah, oh, what a good word that is. Now look at this. They looked over there and here were these hicks, you know, from Idabel with, uh, you know, with, uh, with overalls, rednecks, I mean, uh, from, you know, with, with overalls, these ignorant people from the sticks, from the woods, unlettered and ignorant dummies. Now, don't you run out of here and say it. I said everybody from Idabel is an ignorant dummy. I, I, what I, what I say that for? Are you from Ida Bell? Well, let me change that. Maybe that's wrong. No, I'm just... 
here, here were these guys who knew nothing. And they looked at him and they were astounded because they knew they'd been with Jesus. I wonder tonight, is there anybody, is there anybody who looks at you with amazement and knows that you walk with God? Somebody came up to Dwight L. Moody and he said, I know what you're doing is of God because there's nothing in you that could cause this to happen. Is there anything about your life that can only be explained in terms of the work of God? Is there anything that's going on in your life that, that confounds those who look upon it and silence their, their rejection? And they looked at these men from the sticks and they could say nothing. Besides all that, there stood in their midst, you know, standing over here on the, on the side was this guy doing calisthenics, you know, jumping jacks. And he'd been, he'd been crippled for 40 years over here doing jumping jacks and knee bends and whatever. And they looked over at that guy and they said, we don't believe in miracles, but there is one. Isn't it beautiful when you see a transformed life silence religious skeptics? I picked up the newspaper the other day and I, in the Dallas Morning News and I read this article about Bob Lilly. You know that name, don't you? My only claim to fame is that I played against Bob Lilly in high school. He's a, he's a, he's a foot, he lived in Frock Martin, Texas, big old gangly defensive end, and I played against him in high school football. He was a Baptist. He divorced after his, and he married again. He converted to Roman Catholicism as a convenience. Bob Lilly uh, became the distributor of Coors Beer distributorship in Waco, Texas, and was making what he described himself as an unbelievable amount of money. And he got sick. He thought he was going to die. One day he was driving from Fort Worth to Waco and he came upon this wreck and it was a bunch of teenagers had a wreck and, and he stopped to see if he could help and there, was Coors, there were Coors beer cans laying all around. Right then he decided he was going to sell his distributorship. He went to Waco and he sold out. He said, I was making an enormous amount of money so I could have been a multi-millionaire. And his wife had converted to Jesus Christ two and a half years before. Her name was Kathy in a Baptist church in Waco, Texas. And he said, I looked at my wife and I said, I don't know what you have about you. You've heard this old cliche? He said, I said to her, I don't know what you have about you, but what you have I want. And he accepted Christ as his personal Savior. And the long and the short of that little article was, is that he found out what was wrong with him and he found peace and he found joy in the person of Jesus Christ in his life. Now here's old Kathy standing over here at the side Bob Lilly lived with. And when she became a Christian, she came to, to possess something that set up a desire, a quest in his heart and silenced every rejection he'd ever thought of and every skeptic 
skeptical thought he'd ever had. That's the limitation of religion. It cannot answer a transformed life. Now hurry with me uh, to, the, to religion exits, beginning verse 15. I'm just going to read the issue is this. Look at here. Are you with me? Verse 15 and 16. But when they had ordered them, look at verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to go outside out of the council, they began to confer with one another. Here are these 70 men and the, and the, uh, and the big shots. And they were whispering, they were mummering, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. What can you say? What can we say? That's the issue. This is the warning. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. You know, I was reading this over and over trying to find what God's Word says in verse 17 just leaped out of there. Look at there. You know how to perpetuate a miracle? You know how to perpetuate a miracle? Not by talking about the miracle, but by talking about the Lord of the miracle. Now, it's kind of said to me, why didn't they, they didn't say, we're going to tell them not to tell anybody about this miracle so, no, so it won't spread anymore. Didn't even say that at all. They said, we're going to tell them not to speak in this name. If you want to perpetuate a miracle, begin to speak in the name of Jesus. And if you want it to spread around that God is doing mighty things, don't talk about what God is doing, just talk about God's Son. And that was the warning. Don't speak anymore in this name. And this was the answer. This was response. Verse 18. When they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God or not, you have to be the judge. But we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Now, I don't think you understand. Uh, I don't think we really understand uh, what, what these men faced. Their life was marked. They were, mar they were dead men. I mean, they were marked. You, you speak in the name of Jesus and you're a dead man. I, they were, they were, they were uh, a hit had been put out on them. They were marked men. That's where the sign of the fish came about. I'm told that a man, that was a kind of a symbol, a, se a secret thing. A guy would be walking, he'd meet a man, he didn't know whether he was a believer or not. He'd just slip his foot out of, a, out of his sandals and make half the sign of the fish on the ground. If the other man was a believer, understood, he'd make the other half of the sign. These men, and perhaps a little, little word about where the prayer meeting was going to take place that night. These men lived under the threat of death. And here were these here was this Supreme Court saying to them, you don't say another word in the name of Jesus. And they said, well, if that's the word, okay, but we cannot but speak. What do you say? I can't speak. They said, we cannot but speak. What do you say? I can't teach. I just don't have it. I just can't do it. I, I just can't witness. I'll tell you, I want to, but I can't. They said, we can't but witness. I don't know whether you agree with everything Paul Tillich says or not, but 
he made this statement, just fundamental, plain truth. He said this, at the heart of Christian evangelism is, I want to tell you about something I have seen, and I want to tell you about something I've heard. That's just simple and plain as that. Now, what is the application to you and to me tonight? Just two little things. Get this one through. Won't take you five seconds to get them either. The first is this. The first thing we need is an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. And the second thing, the last thing we need is a substitute. That's the application of this message. The first thing we need is an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. And the last thing we need is any substitute. Now it concerns me a little bit when I pick up the uh, 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 articles, the religious articles and, and publications and I read that, that there's been a revival meeting in uh, uh, First Church Big and, and uh, 100 people have been saved and 90 of them are members of the church, deacons and Sunday school teachers, that, that bothers me a little bit. I, I, I wonder, you know, what, about what's going on. You know, maybe some high pressure there or something. But on the other hand, I am absolutely convinced that every morning I stand in this church, I speak to religious people who have never had an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know that I pastor people in this church who have never had a vital encounter of salvation with the Lord Jesus. I know that. And some come every Sunday, religious folk. I have a deep feeling about this, that I preach to some people who do not have an authentic relationship with Christ. But that's neither here nor there. What is the here is, do you have an authentic relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, have you ever had a personal conversion, a new birth experience that transformed you to a new creation? Any substitute for that, you don't need. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, it seems to me that men can sit in the church doors for 40 years where religious trappings are found and religious teachings are taught and religious words are spoken and remain a cripple spiritually, lame for their lifetime. Let us hear again the words of these disciples, silver and gold have I none, but such I have give I to thee in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And I pray that in the name of Jesus, 
a name which is above every name. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. People will come to know Christ, salvation through his name, forgiveness of sin, eternal life. And I pray tonight that you'll speak to our heart concerning your desire for us, where we are and what we're to do, the diagnosis and the prognosis. And I pray that that'll be a reality, a revealing, a revelation to us right now, that we'll be responsive. Forgive us because we are Christian and there is no evidence to the outsider and the other person that will move them. There is no real witness. God, give us the Christianity that walks and shines and Christ shining through us. Help us to be satisfied with nothing short of that. I pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Now in a spirit of prayer, we'll enter our invitation time, a very special time. And I'll ask you to come tonight on these invitations. Come accepting Christ as your Savior to encounter him in a life-changing encounter. Authentic Christianity is trusting Jesus and Jesus only for your salvation depending on no farm, no ritual, no religion, but upon Jesus and Him only, what He's done in the finished work of Calvary. Or to come tonight to say, my life is not what it should be. I want to join this church. I want to place my life here. I want to rededicate myself to God. Would you do that as we stand and our invitation is extended to you?